Emily and I kind of looked at each other and realized that they, we were losing their tension. And so I mentioned that Emily is also researching porn. It's Issa on the mic. And it goes back to you asked, like, can you get answers from watching porn? And I think, yeah, you can get answers about sex, but they're the wrong answers often. Um, it's kind of like learning how to be president from watching House of Cards. <laughs> it's not going to help, and it's going to send you the wrong message. For me, one of the interesting things about being in public health and studying pornography is that, for the most part, people want to make these big blanket statements. Just how does pornography influence kids or something like that? And pornography is such a varied media. I mean, there's so many different types, and it really matters how long you watch it and for what reasons and where and in what context. I mean, there's so many ways to enrich what mm -hmm. that exposure is. And then, you know, in terms of the, does it affect kids? Kids are a diverse group of people too. And so um, we can really add a lot to the public discourse about pornography by bringing in that sort of public health perspective of it matters how we stratify what we're looking at. Welcome. This is the February 2020 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. In this issue of the journal, editors Stuart Landers and Farzana Kapadia have assembled a series of articles about the role of pleasure, as opposed to disease and pain, as a legitimate goal for public health. The articles discuss sex education, clinical practice, HIV transmission control, and more. But in this podcast, I focus on one original experience that takes place in Boston, which consists of developing a course for teenagers which uses pornography as a lead to prevent teen dating violence, promote healthy relationships, and consent, and encourage critical thinking and healthy communication. My interviewees are Emily Rothman. She is a professor of community health sciences at the Boston University School of Public Health. Jess Alder, she's the director of Start Strong, a program housed at the Boston Public Health Commission, which offers a porn literacy training for young people. And I also interview, collectively, several peer leaders of the course. I was particularly interested in understanding what could motivate educators to combine two apparently diametrically opposed aspects of human sexuality, pornography and healthy relationships. In other words, is pornography the key to the sex education of teenagers. I am Alfredo Moravia, Editor-in-Chief of AJPH, and we are January 7th, 2020. Let's start with Professor Emily Rothman. She does research, teaches, 
and consults on sexual violence prevention, intimate partner violence prevention, and sexually explicit media. When I look at those results of the evaluation of your course, I, I see that four out of five of the students uh, have been exposed to pornography. I mean, this is uh, by far most of them. Would you say that uh, pornography is a key component in the development of American sexuality? Yeah, you know, I think you're right. So a lot of kids, most kids, I think by the time they're 13 years old, have seen pornography. And the estimates sort of vary depending on what survey you're looking at, at what sample. But the long and the short of it is we know by the time people are 18 years old, it's virtually very close to 100% of people have seen pornography either by accident or on purpose. And the question about how does that influence their sexuality and is the way that it is influencing sexuality changing over time? We don't know for sure, which I realize is an unsatisfying answer. People are starting to uncover pieces of this and understand, you know, what types of behaviors may be affected or what types of thoughts may be affected. And I guess what it looks like is that there are subgroups of adolescents who are more vulnerable to being influenced in negative ways by pornography. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, there are many forms of pornography, but I mean, in my view, in its blandest forms, it's a kind of sad parody or sad caricature of the potential of human sexuality. And it's in its hardest form, it's a criminal behavior. So so what can be good about pornography? And why would you teach it? Yeah, okay. It's, well, that's a fair question. And part of this is it gets really complicated really fast because we all want to project our own stuff onto what sex is or what it should be. So, you know, I have my own ideas about what good sex is and what it should feel like and what it should look like. But you have to, as a scientist, you sort of have to say, well, I, I don't have a right to project that onto everybody else. And maybe there are some people who enjoy having sex this way or that way that's completely different. Um, and it looks completely different. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, potentially. So I sort of start there from a very judgment-free perspective. And we have to ask the, the question, is that harmful? And if so, in what ways? So there's a subset of it where, um, you know, if people are coerced uh, to participate in pornography, if they are too young, if they're underage, so if they're under the age of 18, or if there are things happening in the pornography that are illegal and non-consensual behaviors, that's absolutely a problem and needs to be addressed. There is also stuff that I would say is very tame and is the far opposite end of the spectrum. And there's evidence that seeing naked bodies, seeing people experience pleasure, which some pornography features, both men and women experiencing pleasure, that that can have a positive effect on the way people view their bodies or the way that they're able to communicate with their partner about what they want, that there is actually can be a positive role for some people of having had the opportunity to, to see positive sexuality. What's complicated is there are ways in which pornography may be harmful and maybe particularly harmful to certain subgroups of people. But on the other hand, 
some of those claims really go overboard and go too far. But explain to me, in which way do they go too far? Well, there are claims about, for example, pornography being related to the dissolution of relationships, like being bad for marriages or, or causing breakups. And the evidence really doesn't support that. You know, there's been a number of studies on it, and the evidence doesn't support it strongly. There is really mixed results about body image. Statements in the resolution claim that people who see pornography, then some body image problems are going to develop eating disorders. And people have done studies to investigate that. And there's really mixed evidence on this. It is not a clear cut case at all. And, you know, there's the whole issue of is pornography addictive? This gets into a really controversial sub area of this whole field where the word addictive and what counts as an addiction is being hotly debated because some people are compulsive about their pornography use. They're, they're not able to control their own use and, and that feels problematic and gets in the way of their ability to do things in their life. But the idea that pornography is operating in a similar way as, a, as an addictive substance doesn't sit right with a lot of other people who are neuroscientists or who are looking into addictions and addiction medicine. And so that one is sort of debated. So we should not uh, make an analogy between uh, pornography and cigarettes or alcohol. You know, I guess, well, it would depend what, what kind of analogy are you thinking or what would the analogy be? Well, you, exactly. told, me, you told me that there is a, a fraction only of the people exposed who, who become addicted uh, to uh, pornography. Uh, most of the people don't. But still, uh, we limit access to tobacco to age 21 in some states. So uh, why wouldn't we do that for pornography? Well, so you raise a good point, and I, I'm not saying that there aren't reasons to consider regulations or put regulations in place. I think we could think about and talk about whether it makes sense to strengthen the regulations that are in place that permit people who are under the age of 18 to see pornography as easily as they do. So mostly you go to websites and you just have to say, yes, I'm 18 and click a box and then you can see the pornography. So maybe there are ways of making that a little bit more stringent and really protecting the people who are under 18 from seeing pornography. So there may be lots of good reasons for wanting to do those things. It's not that pornography is not harmful for everybody and is never causing any problems. That's not true either. It's just a slightly more nuanced and complicated story than, than it's all bad for all people all the time in all situations. And there are folks who are calling for bans. And there are also folks who are saying that this is a public health crisis. And what I am more comfortable saying is, you know, it's a public health question of interest. But do I understand you well, Emily, that uh, in some sense you say uh, more research is needed about pornography before we start doing something? Or do you have a vision of what would be an ideal situation in the way we deal with pornography in society? It really depends on the subpopulation. So when it comes to youth, when it comes to teenagers, I feel comfortable saying that there is enough evidence, I think, to suggest that youth need both better protections from seeing pornography, like mainstream internet pornography, 
especially in the context of not being provided with comprehensive sex education in school. It's a both together. The problem is what kids are learning about sex may primarily be coming from pornography and what pornography is teaching them does worry me, doesn't seem good, but it's not enough to just try to shut down pornography without this wider strategic approach that has to do with making sure that they're getting access to accurate information and a complete set of information, not just the mechanics of how do people get pregnant or, or what's an STI, but the full range of human sexuality and how people communicate and how they, how they become who they are. Uh, as sexual beings, that information isn't being pr provided. And that's just as much a crisis as the fact that they're seeing porn pornographic images. discuss with Jess Adler, the director of Start Strong, how the idea of a pornography literacy training came to be. Many moons ago at this point, probably eight years ago, uh, maybe a few, maybe a couple more, Emily came to talk to the Start Strong peer leaders. And the Start Strong peer leaders are essentially young experts in the field of dating violence prevention, healthy relationship promotion. Uh, and Emily went to talk to them about the wonderful world of public health and researching public health topics. Uh, she put on her coolest outfit, thinking that that would help engage our young people. And unfortunately, they weren't really interested in the research side of public health. And Emily and I kind of looked at each other and realized that they, we were losing their Tension, and so I mentioned that Emily is also researching porn. Let me interrupt you. How did you know that they were not interested? How did did you know that this approach was a failure? We just saw their eyes kind of glazing over. Maybe some side conversations were starting, or maybe some of them kind of gave me the look. What do you expect us to do with this information? Those sort of cues um, indicated that they were interested in a new topic. And porn ended up being the ignition that we needed. Their faces lit up. They started to share some stories. We learned a lot very quickly. And it became very clear that this would be a unique way of continuing the conversations around gender-based violence, gender norms, healthy relationships. What did you learn? You said we, we learned immediately lots of things. What did you learn? It sparked their interest. As soon as you have kind of a current of enthusiasm run throughout the room, you want to latch on to that. And we could tell that from the energy that it sparked that this would be a wave we'd be able to ride for a pretty long time in connecting and exploring conversations to promote healthy relationships using a porn literacy lens. What we do is we approach all of our content using critical thinking skills so that we ask our young people to listen to what they want, watch what they want, but to explore the messages that are being promoted. And we took that same concept and applied it to the porn literacy curriculum. So the porn literacy curriculum really explores what we call the three C's, consent, communication, and critical thinking. 
if you just look at our TV shows or the movies or video games that are out there, or if they browse social media late at night, they will unintentionally stumble upon something that is porn-esque. I mean, TV shows like Shameless, for instance, they're all considered soft pornography, which is some of the scenes that they show. It's just asking them, again, to think about um, their relationships and how they might approach physical intimacy with consent used. How did the person respond to it? And it's asking them to critically examine those messages and some of the scenes that are being portrayed and how those scenes align with their own values. Let's ask now some of the peer leaders of the course for their opinion. Isa and Mehdi are second-year peer leaders, and Ross and Elisa are first-year peer leaders. Can you explain to me what pornography is? Um, I guess it's sexual media. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> How many around you, I'm not talking about uh, yourself, but about your friends, and how many of them do you think are familiar with pornography or exposed to pornography? This is Mehdi talking, speaking. I would say that majority of my friends know about pornography. They're pretty much exposed to them, especially around my age group, high school students, basically. So yeah, I feel like a majority of them know about pornography. And how are they exposed? What are the ways for which they are exposed? This is Mehdi speaking again. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel as if a lot of times when they're exposed to pornography, it's either by movies, any rated R movies, or even PG-13 movies you see at a young age, any jokes about pornography on there, or in middle school when connect you is watching pornography and you're just really confused. So I feel like at a very young age, you're, you see these things, but you don't really understand what it is until you're a little bit older. And even when we're older, you kind of don't, don't understand it either, so... So can you explain to me what you don't understand? Now now that you've taken this course, Sarah, what do you feel you didn't understand that now you understand about pornography? It's Isa on the mic. I think that before taking the course, I didn't really understand the social implications, I guess, the subliminal messaging behind porn and what that teaches kids and viewers who learn about sex from watching porn. So what was this uh, subliminal message? This is Mady speaking. The subliminal message is that the sex that you see on porn is the reality of it. And it doesn't teach you what the, the safety that you should take upon when you're participating in sexual intercourse. Do you think uh, some of your friends consider this as a form of uh, sexual education? This is Alyssa. I think some teens do, but that isn't really good because, like Maydean said, a porn doesn't always show what actually happens in sex, like consent and other things like that. I learned that after taking the course. I just assumed that consent was given. Is pornography a topic that uh, you talk a lot about uh, when you are together at school? Okay, Alyssa. With my friends, we don't really talk about 
porn or sex, but if we're talking about someone's relationship and sex happens to help, then we'll talk about it. But it's never like, oh, do you guys watch porn? Or do you guys know this and this? Okay, my boyfriend wanted to do this. What should I do? Do you think that, or, or did you think that pornography, movie, or any form of media could provide some answers? Maybe speaking can be very formative, but I feel like the majority of the time it really isn't, especially like old movies. Back then, people were more conservative and they don't really speak about the safeties on, on sex and sex protection. And if people displayed their media on pornography more appropriately and more informatively, I feel like it would be very healthy for viewers. Would you recommend this course to other students? Ross and yeah, I would recommend the course. I would recommend this to my friends if they get into a relationship. They know how they should be treated compared to what they're shown in media. I also would just recommend it to anyone because you might feel uncomfortable a little bit. You're learning information that could be valuable for later on down the road to keep yourself safe and other um also other people safe. Um, this is maybe I also want to answer to that question, now that's more differently, if I was to speak with my friends about porn and with, with, I, with what I know now after taking the pornography class, I would like tell my friends a lot of the time pornography that sometimes you're forced to do pornography and a man and a, and a woman don't get as much as you would think they would have. And most of the time they're not provided safety within like the scene. Those are some things that I would like tell my friends if they were asking about pornography. Okay, take care, everybody. Thanks again. Thank you. you. Bye-bye, bye-bye. Bye. This interview stressed an aspect of the exposure of young persons to pornography, which I did not value before. These conversations confirmed what we all know, that most, if not all, teens are exposed at some point in time to scenes of human sexuality. However, what is less known is how teens are interpreting what they see. They may well consider them as expressions of the sexuality most adults have and therefore use them as substitute to the sex education only a minority receive at school. Thus, a course building on this genuine interest of teenagers to pornography and which demystifies its contents, explain what people can expect from it, and why it may help some people but affect others. Such course can be an effective way to get the attention of middle and high school teens. Once the connection is established, the conversation can be extended to related topics such as teen dating violence, consent, and healthy relationships. Rothman and the Start Strong team may well have a model that could be easily replicated elsewhere. 
I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino and Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. Francis Jacob composed and interpreted the pastiche of his song, which is rated one of the 50 sexiest songs of all time. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on your usual podcast app. A full transcript of the podcast is available on the AJPH website for persons with hearing disabilities. That's it. Thank you for listening.